If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, we'll be listening to two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Colson Whitehead in conversation with Ruth Messenger, former Manhattan Borough President, Global Ambassador for American Jewish World Service, and current activists and residents at the JCC's Joseph Stern Center for Social Responsibility. In this podcast, Whitehead discusses his New York Times bestseller, The Nickel Boys, in which a strand of American history is dramatized through the story of two boys sentenced to a hellish reform school in Jim Crow era Florida. Recorded live on February 5th, 2020, this event was presented in partnership with the Stern Center for Social Responsibility. Thank you. Thank you for being here. How do you do? Thank you for being here. Um, Colson, lots of people in this audience have read The Underground Railroad, and I hope they've read Nickel Boys, and we're going to be talking about them for sure. But I want to start to find, by finding out some more about Colson Whitehead. Surely. So where did you grow up, and how early were you interested in writing? Yeah, I grew up uh, all over Manhattan. You know, I had, like, I had uh, three siblings, and so kid goes off to college, get a small apartment. <laughs> the kid comes along, get a bigger apartment. Um, for high school and college, I, grew up, I lived on 101st and West End and um, was in Brooklyn for many years, just came back, so it's great to be back in the old neighborhood. Um, some of the stuff is still the same. <laughs> some things have changed. Oh, yeah, really? I was, I was really psyched to uh, do a uh, reading at the Thalia um, in December, and I remember being in high school and going to see, like, Breathless and Godard movies, stuff like that, so... Um, I'm glad that space is still around. And writing. And writing. Um, yeah, I didn't like doing sports or leaving the house like most normal <laughs> children. So uh, I would just hang around my living room watching uh, Twilight Zone reruns and reading Marvel comics. And, uh, and, it's, and I adored like Stephen King. And a scene from, when I, was a, from like, when I was like 9 or 10 or 11 that being a writer could be a good job. Um, if you're a writer, you could stay home. We don't have to talk to anybody. And you can just make up all weird stuff all day. So that's what, how I spent my morning, just like making up weird stuff and um, living the dream. Okay. And, and since I'm not a writer, what is the trajectory that moves from, and I'm sure I don't have it all, but from zombies to poker to teenage angst to summers in Sag Harbor to race and racism and slavery? Yeah, I mean, I... Um, <laughs> Here's uh, Sag Harbor, everyone. I think a lot of, like a lot of people, I have a lot of different interests, and I grew up wanting to write because of comic books and, and Stephen King. And then I read Garcia Marquez and Dostoevsky in, in high school and college, and 
found a different way of, of writing. Um, but what I like about my job is that if I keep doing it, I can write about write different kinds of stories. I'm not doing the, the same thing all the time. And so I liked horror movies. I wrote a zombie novel. Um, I hated being a teenager, so I wrote a book about being a teenager to see if I could figure out why I hated it so much. And then, um, uh, you know, for my background in, in fantasy literature, that feeds into the Underground Railroad. There's that sort of magic realistic, realism, realism element of a fantastic train. So sometimes realism is a way to tell a story. Sometimes you make stuff up, sometimes nonfiction. My older sisters would read... Um, Joan Didion and, and Thomas, Tom Wolfe, and uh, I would, you know, get their books uh, later. And so I grew up reading these, these sort of um, uh, famous folks who did the new, new journalism. And so my poker book is a salute to some of, that inf some of those influences. So, you know, I like different kinds of stories, and if I keep going, I can uh, find different ways of, of uh, addressing my influences. Because that's one of the things that struck me, and I did not read all of the earlier books, I did read Sag Harbor, but is that you seem to be a writer that has a keen interest in story and genre twisting. So Underground Railroad is a real story about slavery, and it's a total fantasy. It's a sure. fantasy that fits with what lots of us thought about when we first heard there was an Underground Railroad, which is, oh, really, where is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the same thing in, um, in Nickel Boys, which is in some ways the true story of a true place and in some ways a piece of fiction. So where did that come from? Yeah, well, Nickel Boys is, is realistic and um, I didn't need the sort of fantastic element of the Underground Railroad to tell their story. And it's, it's a short book, it's 200 pages. I want to stay focused on them, these two, these two boys. And um, so I'm always like trying to figure out the right tool for the job and it's fantasy, it's realism, it's a first person narrator or a third person narrator, depending. And before I start writing, I, I try to figure out how to best tell the story. In terms of the, the Nickel Boys, um, uh, in the summer of 2014, I came across a news report about the Dozier School for Boys, which is a real-life reform school in Florida, operated for 111 years. And they closed it down because of, uh, because of abuse that had been happening over decades and decades. And they're going to sell the land off, and they discovered um, unmarked graves. And they found 55 unmarked graves on the, on the, the land of the, of the school. And in 2014, they were starting to dig up and identify the bodies and figure out how they died. And some of them died of pneumonia, natural causes, and some of them had um, shotgun pellets in their rib, rib cages. Some of them had blunt force trauma evidence to their skulls. Um, and it just seemed crazy. I had never heard of this place. And if there's one place like Dozier, this reform school, where this abuse was happening, how many other stories um, have we not heard about? And uh, I, I knew sort of right then I wanted to write about it. And it, it, the story unfolds. There's a, a mix of physical, emotional, sexual abuse of these boys. How much of that did you understandably imagine from the fact that there were graves and graves with some markings of shootings and how much of that came from the people who stepped forward and gave, who were still alive and gave testimony as to what had happened. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, over the, the decades and decades the place was open, there'd be rumors of abuse um, 
and promises of reform, and as happens, like nothing would happen. Uh, and so as early as 1903, they found kids as young as six shackled, um, put in solitary confinement. There'd be promises of, uh, of change, nothing would happen, and that happened for 111 years. So when they finally closed it, you know, there were adult survivors, people in their 60s and 70s who'd been there when they were kids, testifying uh, in Congress and in Florida. Um, and so there's hundreds of testimony um, recorded by the government. There are survivor websites um, where you can upload your, the story of your time at Dozier, and that's two paragraphs or, or two pages, how you got there. Um, and all the, you know, all the, unfortunately, all the physical and sexual abuse I describe is, you know, uh, recounted by many different people over the decades. And all the people um, who were named as abusers in the 50s and the 60s kept working there for decades. They were never fired. They retired. In some cases, they would get awards from their communities for being upstanding citizens. Um, one of the good things is that now we have a, a language for that kind of trauma. Um, so there are support groups. Uh, the, those are survivors get together, um, sometimes visiting the place, sharing their stories. And so um, I, I drew from all their accounts. There's, there are a few memoirs. Uh, and then sent my two invented boys into the school um, and so I could have my own story, but set... Um, in this real place. So I want to get to that's the story of Elwood and Turner in a minute, and also um, talk more about what happens to them. And I want you to read something from the book. But could you would you do us the favor of stating the I guess somewhat obvious and say how did an institution with evident abuse, evident racism, dramatic corruption that people kept reporting on, how was it allowed? to continue to operate. Well, how do we allow uh, these incarceration camps on our southern border of refugee children? Um, we're, we're bad people. Uh, we do things to innocence if we can get away with it. And people uh, turn a blind eye. What's the point in, in firing uh, these guards, open yourself up to a lawsuit? Um, best to sort of promise an investigation and then hope everyone forgets about it, which is what happens. Um, you know, one of the horrifying things about the story um, when I was traveling with the book when it came out is that I'd be in Ireland and people would say, oh, this reminds me of the Magdalene Laundries where the same sort of abuse happened. In Canada, this reminds me of the residential schools. They would t in Canada, they would take indigenous children, take them from their families to teach them white culture, and the same sort of sex, sexual and physical abuse happened in those places. Um, terrible people, if they can get away with it, would do terrible things, and, and no one particularly ever wants to sort of step up and stop it, and so that's why it happens. We have a deep flaw in our, our natures, unfortunately. Would you do us a favor and read a couple of selections from the book, and then we'll, and then we'll go on to talk about your story and the two boys. I shall. Um, so it's based, you know, I didn't have to set it in a real place. I could have just taken a generic reform school. Um, but I did feel I wanted to, you know, pay tribute to the, the people whose stories I, I was reading and being inspired by. And so um, there's a physical place, Dozier. And as a fiction writer, I'm trying to figure out places where 
arenas of conflict where I can set my characters and have them bump up against each other and get revelation, dramatic tension. So is the ham radio club an interesting site where I can put my characters in? Probably not. I mean, perhaps ham radio is a really important, really interesting hobby. I don't really know. Um, but the boxing club seemed to be a good site for interaction, uh, that elemental battle uh, between two boys. And so this section is about the annual boxing match uh, between the, the, the best black fighter and the best white fighter on campus. The, I see now my son has gotten some sort of soup or substance on my iPad. Um, you can write about that next. So I'll have to give it a good wipe when I got to go. Okay. The boys rooted for Griff, even though he was a miserable bully who jimmied and pried at their weaknesses and made up weaknesses if you couldn't find any, such as calling you a knock-kneed piece of shit, even if your knees had never knocked your whole life. He tripped them and laughed at the ensuing pratfalls and slapped them around when he could get away with it. He punked them out, dragging them into dark rooms. He smelled like a horse and made fun of their mothers, which was pretty low given the general motherlessness of the student population. Griff stole their desserts on multiple occasions, swiped from trays with a grin, and even if the desserts in question were no great shakes, it was the principle. The boys rooted for Griff because he was going to represent the colored half of Nickel at the annual boxing match. And no matter what he did the rest of the year, the day of the fight, he would be all of them in one black body. And he was going to knock the white boy out. If Griff spat teeth before that happened, swell. The Nickel Academy was a reform school for boys, juvenile offenders, wards of the state, orphans. Runaways who'd lit out to get away from mothers who entertained men for money or to escape rummy fathers who came into their rooms in the middle of the night. Some of them had stolen money, cussed at their teachers, damaged public property. They told stories about bloody pool hall fights and uncles who sold moonshine. A bunch of them were sent there for offenses they'd never heard of. Malingering, mopery, incorrigibility. Words the boys didn't understand either, but what was their point when their meaning was clear enough? Nickel. The combat served as a kind of mollifying spell to tide them through the daily humiliations. The colored boys had held the boxing title for 15 years, since 1949. Old hands on staff remembered the, the last white champion and still talked him up. Other things from the old days they discussed less discussed less often. Cherry Doc Burns had been an anvil-handed good old boy from a musty corner of Sewanee County who'd been sent to Nickel for strangling a neighbor's chickens. 21 chickens, to be exact, because they were, quote, out to get me, unquote. Pain rolled off him like rain from a slate roof. After Doc Burns had returned to the free world, the white boys who advanced to the final fight were pikers, so wobbly that over the years, tall tales about the former champion had grown more and more extravagant. Nature had gifted Doc Burns with an unnaturally long reach. His legendary combo had swatted down every comer and rattled windows. In fact, Doc Burns had been beaten and ill-treated by so many in his life, 
family and strangers alike, that by the time he arrived at Nickel, all punishments were gentle breezes. This was Griff's first term on the boxing team. He'd arrived at Nickel in February, right after the graduation of the previous champ, Axel Parks. His emergence as the baddest brother on campus had made him Axel's natural successor. Griff was a giant, broad-chested and hunched like a big brown bear. His daddy, it was said, was on a chain gang in Alabama for murdering his mother, making his meanness a handed-down thing. Outside the ring, Griff made a hobby of terrorizing the weaker boys, the boys without friends, the weepy ones. Inside the ring, his prey stepped right up so he didn't have to waste time hunting. Like an electric toaster or an automated washing machine, boxing was a modern convenience that made his life easier. Okay. And why did you choose that particular section? Oh, um, I guess because, you know, uh, I, talk, yeah, I talked about it's not just juvenile offenders, it's um, orphans and wards of the state. People, have, people had nowhere else to go. They're being warehoused at this uh, uh, juvenile correction place. And no one deserves the, the terrible treatments, the, the rapes and the, and the beatings and the, and the murder. Uh, uh, not even Griff. So Griff is a terrible character, and he, um, some bad things happened to him in that chapter, and I wanted to sort of humanize a villain, humanize a villain like Griff. He's terrorizing some of the, my protagonists, um, but even he, as bad as he is, doesn't deserve what happens to him. Okay, talk a little bit about the two characters that you invented and developed, Elwood and Turner. On one reading, you know, you see one is hopeful, one is hopeless, one is change-oriented, one is cynical. I think actually each of them is a little more complicated than that. Sure, like we all are, yeah. Um, but um, talk a little bit about developing them, and of course, tell us which one is Coulson. Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I could have picked any time for the book to take place, 1920s, uh, 2010. And I picked 1963 and 64 because it's the height of the, of the civil rights movement. Uh, we're about to get the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. Um, but it's also the height of Jim Crow. And so there's that push and pull between our regressive uh, impulses and our progressive impulses um, captured in, in 1963. And I knew I wanted Elwood, my main character, to be a sort of goody-goody. He's grown up uh, seeing advances in terms of civil rights. Uh, he works in a stationery store, and every week there's a new edition of Life magazine, and he see, sees Dr. King and his cohort changing the world. He's inspired and sees himself as part of this generation that's changing things. Um, but once you have a character like that, it calls out for his opposite, and that's how Turner came in. So Turner is an orphan, has always lived by his wits, and doesn't see, doesn't believe that we can change things. People don't change, systems don't change, and all you can really do is just uh, fight for survival every day. And so um, I, had, I didn't want to write another heavy book after Underground Railroad. I have a delicate uh, constitution. And, uh, but in the spring of, of 2017, I was trying to figure out what I should do next, and uh, the Nickel Boys called out to me. You know, I felt very despondent those first few months in 20, and after Trump's election. 
Uh, we all vaguely remember that. <laughs> uh, should I believe that our, our, our country is moving forward? Um, why should I believe that we're moving in a progressive direction when there's so much evidence to the contrary? So it seemed that in describing the philosophical battle between Elwood and Turner, I might be able to deal with my, some of my own feelings of helplessness and hopefulness. Um, so who am I? You know, I think we all have bits of Elwood and Turner. The last three years, I'm pretty identified with my Turner side. <laughs> um, everything is going to hell, and there's not much that we can do about it. Um, but, you know, who knows when Elwood might come knocking again in the back of my subconscious, you know. Perhaps November 9th. <laughs> 76 West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store at 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 50 United States and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. So I think we actually have your answer to this, but in terms of progress or lack of progress, why are the areas of prison reform and mass incarceration so intractable and seem, at least to many of us, like even at the slightly elevated Elwood moments, those are not arenas in which we're making progress? Well, I think, uh, you know, we have, we just talk about voting. We have voter disenfranchisement under slavery. Black people are not citizens, we can't vote. Uh, Jim Crow, you know, the powers that be define, devise different ways of making sure we don't vote. A uh, white person goes to the polls and um, the literacy test is, who's president? John F. Kennedy. And a, a black person comes up and a literacy test is, recite the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so that's so, uh, that's mostly put to bed uh, after the voting Voting Rights Act. And so we get gerrymander, gerrymandering. We take away the voting rights of, of, of felons. Um, there are a lot of people invested, literally, in terms of for-profit institutions in keeping uh, a very large um, uh, body of people behind bars. There's money in it. Um, you know, there's... We're just and there's a lot in the book. Um, I mean, you might want to come back to the or audience might have questions about the two boys. But as I was saying to you in the back, I was also struck by the 
pervasive degree of institutional corruption and lack of accountability. Um, I don't know how many of you read the book, but I told Colson that one of my cherished parts is something called community service, which you may want to explain to people what community service looks like in the book. Sure. Uh, before the Elwood timeline in the early part of the century, the school would lease out children to farmers and and, uh, and businesses in town, and some of the kids would end up killed. So that, that's one form of community service. Um, but in the 50s, 50s and 60s, and in, in, in adult prisons and places like the Dozier School, you know, they they drop off the uh, uh, the steak for the and, and beef for the students, and it goes out the other way and is sold in, into town. All the supplies, um, uh, food, toothpaste—it's a big racket. What the institutional leaders can, you know, uh, uh, can make a buck off of. And so, I first heard about that, about that when I was like ten and saw Brubaker, the movie Brubaker with uh, uh, Robert Redford. It's based on the true story of a, a warden in the Arkansas prison system in the 60s. And um, he writes in his, in his memoir, which I use for research for this book, um, about the, you know, this sort of rampant corruption. And so in talking about why is the prison system uh, so powerful uh, and so entrenched, because a lot of people make money off of it and we're a pretty corruptible sort. True. Um, and where are you now in um, 2020, before November 9th? Anyway, where are you now as an activist and as a writer? I saw some talk show interviews that said the next book might be a crime novel set in Harlem. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but where are you as a writer and where are you uh, as an activist? Right. As an activist, uh, it's like giving money to people impulsively, like at midnight. Like, uh, <laughs> you're, running, you're running against Mitch McConnell? Okay, I don't even know anything about you. Know, no. Her um, name is Amy McGrath. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm giving her money. You know. uh, and in terms of an artist, yeah, I mean, I had this idea for a crime novel about six years ago, and I put it aside to work with the Nickel Boys. And it's set in Harlem in the 60s, and it's just really fun research, you know, um, uh, I do a lot of like location scouting when I can. And so just walking around Harlem, I'm like, oh, maybe my guy has his office here in this building. Was it around in 1950s or 60s? Um, what was here before this housing project was put up? Maybe I can set something there. And then it's fun writing about a time where my mom, uh, a time and place where my mom was. You know, she was living in Harlem in the 60s. And so I'll spend like a week doing research on the Hotel Teresa, 125th and Lenox, and the chock full of nuts. And like I'll find pictures of Muhammad Ali and the chock full of nuts. And I'm very excited. And then, she, and then I'll tell my mom. She's like, oh, yeah, I eat, I eat every day for breakfast. And I'm like, I should have just asked you. <laughs> Happens over and over again. I told her about Blumstein's, the big department store up there. It's like, oh, yeah, your dad worked there two summers, like, you know, in 63 and 64. And Hotel Teresa was where Castro was. Yeah, uh, Castro came uh, there. JFK, when he was courting the black vote, you know, had a, had a few rallies up there. It was like the Waldorf Astoria of, uh, of black Harlem. And so that's fun, just, you know, uncovering... Uh, this history, history of New York before I came on the scene. And so I had finally had to pick up the power broker. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't believe like, this one guy did all this. Yeah. 
Um, Robert Wagner, I knew nothing about Robert Wagner. I had to, you know, figure out where he fits in. And he does fit in. Um, so it's been really fun to, to work on. All right, Ashley, I realize you're talking about this locational research, but you never went to Dozier. Why not? Oh, yeah, so Dozier, real place, Florida. And uh, I am a shut-in. And, you know, the more research I can do from home, the happier I am. When I leave the house, then, you know, there's too many, the word is um, people. And if I could avoid... <laughs> Human interaction is usually a big win for, for young Colson. <laughs> uh, but you do have to get, leave the house to do like your real world research. And I meant to go to Dozier and I was writing and writing. It's like, oh, I'll go next month. I'll go next month. And uh, halfway through the book, I realized that I got this real sort of physical panic feeling when I would think about going. You know, I was so attached to my characters. I was so deep into the stories of the people who'd inspired me that I was just really angry whenever I thought about going there. And I realized that um, if I went, it would just be with, you know, a stick of dynamite and a bulldozer. Um, uh, in between me finishing the book and it coming out, Hurricane Michael, I think it was, hit Florida and actually demolished a lot of the place. And so if you see pictures of it now, it's completely sort of dilapidated and, and ruins. And so finally, you know, Mother Nature stepped in to take care of what we didn't really. And are you doing any, obviously you're doing lots of um, book, book interviews, are you doing any specific talking about prisons, imprisonment, institutional corruption, racism that's dividing parts of our country? Just in terms of you know, the book, I mean, I think there are people who actually know more what they're talking about. I know just enough to get my book done and then like... Uh, like in the story of Flowers for Algernon, everything I learned slowly drifts away, you know, pretty after, after I'm done. So there are people who actually, I think, know more about these issues uh, than I do, and I'm, I'm glad they're out there. I can, I'm a fiction writer, and I can sort of shape art out of these real-life things, whether it's the Dozier School or uh, American History and Slavery, and that's, I think, my, my role. Um, and I'm lucky that there are, you know, there are people who actually... And on the days that you're at Elwood, what are your sources of hope for change? Um, I guess my, you know, my kids, I, I sort of have to hope that the world will, is, is going to move in a forward, positive, progressive direction for their sakes. Um, even if we, you know, get this guy out of the White House, we're still, the planet's still burning. Uh, the seas are, are rising. Hurricanes are becoming stronger. Uh wildfires uh, becoming this new sort of terrible menace. And so there are short-term things we have to fix and then longer-term things. And that's where I think you have to be hopeful because it's going to take a lot of us and all of us pitching in in order to fix what we've undo, undo what we've done. As you, as you heard, all of you, this is um, half produced by the Joseph Stern Center for Social Responsibility here. The mission of the center is to inspire, educate, and empower people to work for a more just and equitable world. So I'm hoping that this audience who've read your books wonder what you think they should be doing. And I'm gonna emphasize doing, acting. Yes, they can also write checks at midnight to all kinds of candidates and causes, but what more can they be doing? Um, I really don't know. Maybe, maybe, you, can, maybe you know. Um, well, there were, oh, Hopefully, we're putting out a lot of ideas and options for people, but um, it would be 
powerful to see you picking up on some of those issues on the days when you just actually want to see a person, which sounds like it's rare. Um, but is to, is to step out on some of these issues. Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, um, you know, the book I'm working on now has more jokes, and definitely the last few books have been sort of devoid of jokes. And I think um, all of us, you know, veer between tragedy and, and comedy from hour to hour across the course of a day. And what an important part of my work is uh, writing about race in American history and politics. And it's also about addressing uh, our, our sort of comedic human frailties. And, you know, if you look at the, a book like this, Sag Harbor, which is really about growing up and figuring out your identity as sort of one way of, of thinking about the world and addressing the world. And then if you go to the Nickel Boys Underground Railroad, there's a different sort of way of stepping back and trying to think about these systems that oppress us over time uh, that we don't necessarily think about we participate in uh, and rule so much of our lives. And so I think it's sort of my job, at least as an artist, to sort of rove around and find different ways of talking about human experience. And sometimes it's in a more serious way, sometimes it's a more lighter way. Um, and, uh, and I'm lucky that, you know, I get to do that. Okay, I'm gonna ask two more questions. One is I know from sitting in on some of these um, interviews that there are writers around. So can you say a little bit about your writing process? We, we get that you don't like people, and, we, and you talk, no, I'm serious, and you talked about character development, but, but you know, how do, how do you go about putting together the pieces of one of your books? Yeah, I mean, it usually starts like a, a what if, so Underground Railroad, what if it was actually literal railroad? Um, and then if the, the idea stays with me, it gets sort of bigger and bigger. Uh, um, what if it's a literal railroad? And then also there's this Gulliver's Travel type thing where each state is a different alternative reality. And then that's a premise, not so much of a story. And I start thinking about the characters and who's going to move through. Should it be a male character or a female character? With Underground Railroad, in a practical sense, I had a bunch, had a bunch of male protagonists in a row. So a voice in the back of my head was saying, saying don't do the same crap all the time, Colson. Um, but also, I was very moved in college by reading uh, Harriet Jacobs' story about uh, running north, being a slave in the South and running north. And she writes very movingly about the dilemma of the female slave. Uh, when you're a female slave and you become a woman, you're supposed to pump out babies because more babies means more money, more property for your master. And it's a different problem than faced male slaves, and that seemed worthy of picking up. Um, and I hadn't had a female protagonist in a while. So it gets bigger and bigger. Who's in the story? What's the story? What's the voice? Is it realistic? Is it fantastic? And then day to day, you know, um, some people say you should write every day. That seems like a real imposition on my time, frankly. <laughs> um, so if I can do eight pages a week, like four or five days, uh, that adds up, you know, I'm sort of uh, still a nerd and eight pages a week is like 30 something a month. After 10 months, you have like 300 pages and that's like a novel. Um, if you write four pages a week, that's like 200 a year. And that's after two years, you have like a, a novel. So, uh, if I can break an unpleasant task into units, uh, if I can see the end, whether it's something unpleasant like a novel or a, a children's birthday party. It seems doable. 
and something I can get a handle on. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about these children who get soup on your um, about uh, your children. Oh yeah, uh, one is five and one is one is fifteen. One just turned six. One is fifteen, and um, I don't know. I mean, I never really thought that I could. Uh, I talk about being curmudgingly and not liking people. I never really thought I could have so much love in my life. And um, so when my daughter was born 15 years ago, it really sort of showed me a, a, new, a different way of being in the world. So um, I'm definitely indebted to them for uh, bringing so much lovely things to my life and my, my lovely wife. And, you know, I'm glad uh, how the last couple of years have turned out, basically. So thanks so much for, for reading, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out. And thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you, Colson, for sharing so much of yourself, and thank you for your amazing comic sense. We have several other careers for you in life. Thanks a lot. That was Colson Whitehead talking to Ruth Messenger. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes. This is the last episode of 76 West for a while. We're in the process of discussing what's next for this podcast. There may be another season, or it may morph into something else. So don't delete us just yet. As soon as we know our next move, we'll be sure to let you know.